This is Gulf Coast Life from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. Florida's 60-day legislative session ended last Friday with a record $117 billion budget for the coming fiscal year. With Republican supermajorities in both the state House and Senate, many of Governor Ron DeSantis' priority measures passed the legislative process ahead of an expected official announcement of his GOP presidential campaign. Legislation that passed includes a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, a loosening of regulations on firearms, a massive expansion of Florida's school voucher program, crackdowns on voter registration efforts and on most public employee unions, and a ban on the use of funds for programs at state colleges and universities that espouse diversity, equity, and inclusion, or critical race theory. Florida lawmakers also passed a number of bills pertaining to the LGBTQ plus community, including an expansion of last year's parental rights and education law, dubbed Don't Say Gay by opponents, a ban on gender-affirming health care for transgender minors, a measure targeting drag shows and pride festivals, and a prohibition on gender-inclusive restrooms. In an ongoing trend, state lawmakers also passed a number of measures preempting local government control, including a new law that will invalidate local fertilizer ordinances in favor of restrictions approved by the phosphate industry. Those should be useful. DeSantis and fellow Republican leaders in the state are praising the legislature for the success they reached with an aggressive agenda. Meanwhile, Democratic leaders by and large say this year's annual session is a setback for the state that will leave many Floridians worse off than before the session. Joining me now for a closer analysis of what passed, what didn't, and what it all means for Florida going forward is political scientist Dr. Roger Green. He's an associate professor and assistant director of the College of Arts and Sciences here at Florida Gulf Coast University. Welcome back, Dr. Green. Hi, John. Nice to be here. We're also joined by fellow political scientist Dr. Aubrey Jewett. He's an associate professor and assistant director of the School of Politics, Security, and International Affairs at Florida Central University. Dr. Jewett, always a pleasure to hear you share your insights with our listeners. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So let's begin with this record high $117 billion budget. It's about $7 billion higher than the state spending plan for the current fiscal year. Um, You know, Republicans are praising the spending plan, but like last year, are we still looking at a budget that's being propped up significantly by federal funding? Yeah, yes, we are, John. (laughs) Okay. Still very much the case there? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's going to taper away, but I mean, that's still, it's still sort of a slate of hand where it's it's making something seem as if it's entirely attributable to the governor and the state legislative supermajority, but in fact, it isn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, one major. Yeah, go I, ahead, Doctor Jarrett. I, I just wanted to add real quick, if I could, that um, yeah, absolutely. We are, we are definitely getting uh, still a, a fair amount of federal funds, um, but the economy did grow faster, and tax collections were up a little higher than they thought. So that does add. It probably added at least a couple billion to this budget. So it wasn't all Fed, although quite a bit was. Um, we did we did have some surprising economic growth, which led to higher sales tax collections than they expected. Do you think that has something to do also just with, you know, what U.S. Census data is showing us? Florida's just a really rapidly growing state right now. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why is we, we've, it's really the Florida model of growth for the last 50, 60 years. We grow by yeah. two to three million people a decade, every decade that's been very consistent. And it's continued now. 
And um, that, that is a big part of Florida's growth over time. It's just the fact that we have more people here, thus we have higher economic activity. Right. Uh, one major piece of legislation that passed fairly early in the session was this even further restriction on abortion, banning the procedure in most cases after six weeks of pregnancy. This comes after the 15-week ban that passed last year. But this could possibly not take effect, though. Why is that, Dr. Green? Well, John, you know, previously the, the legislature, had, legislature had enacted a, a ban after 15 weeks with rare exceptions. But um, and the six week, um, you know, new measure would would make that even more extreme. The 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 detail, though, the contingency is that the Florida State Supreme Court, we're still awaiting a ruling by the state Supreme Court on whether or not a privacy clause in the state's constitution would have some impact on abortion rights. So. So until the the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court rules on this, it's still a little bit unclear how this might end up playing out. But for in terms of the sort of the the symbolic or political value for you know sort of the target constituencies here, uh, the the value of enacting this and signing it into law, even though it won't go into effect immediately, that that's still very much in place. Do you um, the fifteen week ban that passed last year didn't include much in the way of exceptions and in cases of rape or incest or but but this this six week ban while being more restrictive did include it does include some yeah I mean it it does include you know in, in certain instances uh, you know for rape incest cases like that I think it's fifteen weeks you know the that's where it's set in in cases where later on there's uh, detection of a fetal abnormality, then it's extended even further. So there are some some uh, allowances that are built into this this new one. So it, it's sort of a mixed bag, but it, but at any rate, it's still going to await a ruling by the the state Supreme Court with respect to that that privacy clause. And Dr. Jewett, I, I know none of us have a crystal ball here, but I, I'm curious as to whether you think abortion rights supporters should hold out much hope that the state Supreme Court will rule in their favor, thereby invalidating the 15-week abortion ban and by extension, the new six-week ban. Probably not much hope there for people who want to see that law overturned. You know, anything's possible, of course, and and maybe this Florida Supreme Court will surprise us. But, you know, it's packed with conservative Republican jurists. It's got four members currently who are actually appointed by DeSantis and soon we'll have a fifth member out of seven appointed by Governor DeSantis. Most of them, if not all, have been affiliated with the Federalist Society, which on one hand, you know, it says it's about the way you make decisions and looking at original intent and all these kinds of things. But if you look historically about how the Federalist Society unfolded, it's really about overturning Roe v. Wade. Basically, it's been a signal for people to, you know, basically Republican conservative jurists would join that as a signal to let everyone know hey, you can appoint me. And unlike some Republicans in the past who were appointed to the courts who disappointed you, I I won't, right? I mean, in reality, that's what it has come to mean. So all that to say that it's, in my view, I'll I'll be shocked if the Florida Supreme Court overturns that uh, 15-week ban on abortion. I I think they'll just basically say, oh, well, yeah, Floridians have a right to privacy, but it doesn't (laughs) apply to abortion. 
Well, turning to K through 12 education, uh, in late March, Governor DeSantis signed into law this massive expansion of Florida's Family Empowerment Scholarship Program. Now, in the past, this has provided funds to lower income families to use for private school tuition or homeschooling resources uh, to the tune of nearly one and a half billion dollars uh, in the most recent numbers I found. But now eligibility caps will be lifted, meaning any family with a K through 12 student could be eligible. A cost estimate given by the bill's sponsor, Representative Kaylee Tuck, put the increase at nearly $210 million. But some independent estimates have put that cost in, in the billions of dollars. There's a huge disparity here. Dr. Green, what gives? Well, I mean, a lot of the uncertainty would, would revolve around how people will respond to the, the, the lifting or elimination of the the eligibility, income-based eligibility requirements. I mean, I mean, is there going to be... A, uh, a, a quick, highly significant transition, you know, of families from the higher income brackets to take advantage of that, or would they not? The other thing is, you know, how many of these cases, I mean, there, the other part of that is the, the ability to use the tuition vouchers for private schools, which, which also kind of, you know, introduces another pretty significant variable in, in terms of the, the cost of it. So, uh, I would, I would, I'm extremely skeptical about the the lower end estimate. I I think I, I mean historically when when higher income people see the opportunity to to take advantage of of a measure, um, they they do so, and maybe that's part of the reason why they they have you know the resources that they have. So I would I think I would skew a little more toward the the higher estimates. Uh, Dr. Jewett, we've seen in other states where legislatures have done ostensibly the identical thing and, again, face this issue where the cost estimates were far lower than what actually happened. Is Florida potentially putting itself in a bad way when it comes to funding this? Yeah, I think so. And particularly if you are a supporter of traditional public education in Florida, there's a real concern that as more and more money is spent on these vouchers to support private schools, that less money will be spent on the public schools. And originally, there was at least some thought, oh, the money follows the child and, you know, we're not going to support infrastructure like building of schools and all these kinds of things. And so that, yeah, Maybe there won't be quite as much total money, but the per pupil amount of money going to traditional K through 12 education, you know, won't be affected. But that just doesn't seem to be the case anymore now that they've opened it up. And you basically have people who have been paying for their kids to go to private schools and paying a lot of expensive tuition. And now all those folks are going to be able to get these vouchers. And so... There, there will be a definite impact, not only on the overall amount, but potentially even on the per child expenses for regular traditional K through 12 schools. Okay. I, I want to come back to K through 12 education in a bit. But first, I wanted to explore the legislature's passage of this measure preventing public colleges and universities like FGCU, like UCF, from spending financial resources on diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. Uh, supporters like Senate bill sponsor Aaron Grawl say DEI is discriminatory and that this measure will foster the presentation of diverse viewpoints. Opponents characterize it quite simply as an attack on academic freedom. 
as professors in public universities here in Florida, I'm really curious about your takes on this measure because it doesn't just target specific courses. It could impact what's taught even in some general core classes. Are you concerned about how this could impact what, what you're able to teach in your own classes? And Dr. Green, I'll start with you. Well, yeah, I, I, I am, John. I mean, look, they're, they're – <laughs> You know, if you've been in higher education for a long time, you can always figure out a lot of ways to kind of modify the terminology you're using and create euphemistic language, especially in a course title or in the course syllabus. There are lots of things you can do to kind of, how shall I put it, maybe better insulate you from sort of direct scrutiny. But Nonetheless, you know, if you think of this as something that that could trigger further uh, changes in the same direction and even just have a chilling effect on what people feel uh, secure in incorporating into their courses, yeah, I think it has a long-term impact. It'll have a long-term impact. I think it has an impact even if you're not somebody who is doing something that's going to come directly under scrutiny. It just, it, it affects people's choices. And a lot of professors are likely to say, well, why should I bring additional grief on myself? I'll, you know, opt for, you know, somewhat different course content or even different courses and shy away from the more sensitive material. Yeah, and Dr. Jewett, what about you? What's the, the temperature on this, on the UCF campus among you and your colleagues? Yeah. Well, for instance, core courses like American National Government, which is been an essential part of the general education program at UCF and, and at most universities in Florida forever, you know, there's real concern because if you can't talk about some of these issues or if you're worried that you might say the wrong thing or that some student will perceive the wrong thing, even if, quote unquote, you didn't say the wrong thing. I mean, I, I agree that a lot of professors will self-censor, e even with the Stop Woke Act. And this new bill is basically a follow-up to last year's Stop Woke Act. You know, that a federal judge, at least for the time being, has said that the Stop Woke Act doesn't apply to colleges and universities or to businesses. And so theoretically, legally, you know, we're off the hook. We can say and, and teach as we normally would. But the fact is that professors have censored themselves. There were several documented cases at UCF where professors, not in political science, but in some other disciplines that were very specifically going to talk about critical race theory or something like that. They were being taught, they were going to be taught by untenured professors. And those professors said, it's not worth it. I don't want to, <laughs> it's too, you know, in this climate, you know, even legally I can do it. I don't want to do it right now. And so their chairs said, okay, yeah, you can teach something else. We'll just find a different course for you to teach. So it definitely has had a, a chilling effect. And again, we can see that it definitely has a chilling effect because even when a judge has said the law can't be imposed, it's still affecting people's behavior. And we, and of course, that was on last year's law. The, the new law, of course, is yet to be challenged, although it may, at least some parts of it. Yeah, if I might just even add kind of, you know, piggyback on something that Aubrey just touched on. Um, yeah, I mean, he mentioned American national government. Okay, that's, that's critically important here because... In the upper division or graduate courses in my department, for example, I'm not really that concerned about these sort of consent, content or self-censorship concerns because the, the students that we're addressing, the majors, you know, undergraduate and graduate majors, the, it's more sort of a self-selected group that is, is more accommodating of the controversial content that might be introduced. 
where it's problematic is with regard to American national government, general education courses, both of these that are now mandated as the two courses you can take to complete a portion of the state's civic literacy requirement, American national government and U.S. history since 1877, both of those courses are housed in my department now, and we have to offer huge numbers of seats, and those involve students from all majors and the likelihood that you will have one or more students who would um, be quick to complain about anything that he or she regards as um, problematic content, it's a, it's a high risk. So people will self-censor. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, for the LGBTQ plus community, this year's session was a particularly tough blow. We saw a passage of an expansion of the parental rights and education law dubbed Don't Say Gay by Opponents. Um, we're also seeing, uh, you know, take making it easier for the public to object to school library books and instructional materials, which is already leading to what are essentially book bans, often of books that have LGBTQ themes in them. Um, there's another bill targeting the trans community that passed, um, barring people from using public restrooms that don't align with their sex assigned at birth. Um, the transgender men and women I know would look very odd complying with that measure. And, during a committee meeting on that bill, State Representative Webster Barnaby made waves with his comments calling Floridians in the meeting mutants and likening the existence of trans people to like watching an X-Men film. Now, aside from the fact that Barnaby seems to have completely missed the central allegory of the entire X-Men franchise dating back to the 1960s, it was really, <laughs> I mean, it was really jarring language. As a member of yes. the LGBTQ community, I mean... That was tough to watch and listen to. Does this feel indicative of just rising anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ hate, not just here in Florida, but across the country? Oh, absolutely. But I, I think it, what it also kind of points towards is how in a, in a sort of an electoral environment that's characterized by partisan gerrymandering and uh, a conservative supermajority in the legislature, I, I guess you could say that demagoguery is perceived as something that pays off. So, uh, you know, demagoguery as opposed to addressing something like a, you know, property insurance crisis, it's, it's for the right, for the right, you know, legislative district, it pays off. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does. And m much, of course, you know, the underlying theme, which maybe I should have said right at the very beginning of this whole session, was primarily, or so it seems to me, and many people who observe the Florida uh, legislature and Florida politics, is to basically help Governor DeSantis appeal to the potential Republican primary voter around the country, not just in Florida, yeah. but really around the country. And so that's why we're seeing, you know, a number of these conservative wedge issues being pushed and pushed and pushed. And particularly on these LGBTQ um, issues, you know, the governor and the, the people that are supporting him, you know, frame it and use language in such a way as to really incite people. Like they talk about providing really life-saving medical care to transgender youth as mutilating children. Or they say that if you're against their parental bill of rights, AKA the don't say gay bill, that you're a groomer and that you're trying to groom yeah. children for sex. And then it's no wonder that a majority, some polls have shown that a majority of Floridians do support what the governor's trying to do because they keep saying that this is about mutilating children and grooming children for sex. Well, who, you know, nobody's for that. But of course, that's not really what it's about. But when, when you use language like that, it's no shock that certainly conservative Republicans are behind it. But as I said, I've, seen, I've read a number of polls that said 
um, e- even a majority of, say, independents support some of these measures they're taking. Yeah, yeah. It's um, the groomer rhetoric is, is, is just keeping it in Florida. Is, is It's nothing new. It, it takes us right back to Anita Bryant decades ago. I know. Um, in terms of what lies ahead, I can't help but thinking back to last year's Stop Woke Act, because in conservative circles, this is still being lauded as though a federal judge didn't strike down key provisions of the law in a scathing ruling, you know, likening it to George Orwell's 1984 and calling it, quote, positively dystopian. Are, are there particular measures that passed in this year's session that you feel are headed for a similar fate? And, and even if they're struck down as unconstitutional, will Republicans continue to reference them as accomplishments, say, on the campaign trail? Well, I, I, th- I don't think there's any question but that um, the, the conservative supermajority, which, as you pointed out, has for a few years now has largely marched in lockstep with Governor DeSantis and helped kind of advance his not only his agenda but his his ambitions they're they're not going to be deterred by fears of you know something being struck down by the court because the principal the principal value of the measures is it's a political one not so much a uh, a substantive and sustained legal one it's one that's geared more toward near-term political advantage or value, especially in support of, of DeSantis's presidential uh, ambitions. Mm. Uh, Dr. Jewett, are, are there any particular measures that passed this year that you think are just prime for facing legal challenges? I mean, the FEA, I think just today, announced one to the uh, the union bill. Yeah, I was going to say that the, the union yeah. bill, which we haven't discussed in detail yet, but it, it basically, it basically tries to bust public unions by requiring them to get 60%, requiring them to do, yeah. a, do a very expensive audit every year. Um, and it, it's, un, in my view, it's right for a constitutional challenge for the 14th Amendment, because they, they picked and, and chose yeah. the public employee unions that were more likely to support Democrats to, to put all these new restrictions on. And they exempted yes. the firefighters and the police who were likely to support Republicans. And so, yeah, to me, that's a clear case of, yeah, if you're going to have a set of rules for public employee unions, then at the very least, e- e- even if they're onerous, then they ought to be consistent across the board and not be selected based on whether you agree or disagree with the party in power, M- much like the Disney lawsuit, which yeah. I might add, there, there's another one that I think yeah. is they're on pretty strong uh, ground there. D- Disney is, I think. But, yeah. uh, While we're on that topic, and, and since you're geographically a lot closer to that whole kerfuffle than we are, Dr. Jewett, I'm just wondering in the long term how you see this playing out. Disney obviously has deep pockets. So does the state of Florida. Indeed. Uh, you know, uh, you, of course, you know, I always tell my students, you know, you never know what's going to happen in a courtroom, e- even if it seems like a slam dunk, even if it seems pretty obvious. You never know for sure exactly what might happen. And in this case, to me, having followed it since the beginning and, fo- and really for, for decades now, I've been following Disney in my in my book, Politics in Florida. Uh, we have a section in the local government chapter for, and it's been in there for a couple of decades, basically says Disney corporation or government. Right. So it's a question that we've mm. been looking at um, on the face of all of this. It seems like Disney has a really strong case that the governor and multiple legislators and some of these board members from this new oversight tourism board have 
directly said that they're seeking to punish Disney for what they said. And that's the reason why they did this. Now, every once in a while, they couch it in terms of, oh, we're going to level the playing field and make sure Disney has to play by the rules that everybody else does. But then they turn around and don't do that. They actually make Disney play by a much harsher set of rules. So all, all that to say that like sort of on just sort of the face value of it, it looks that Disney should easily be able to win this case. But you just never know, you know, in, in federal court, the, um, the, the judge, many, many judges, whether they've been appointed by Republicans or Democrats, have been very supportive of free speech. But you just can't ignore the fact that w once it gets past the, the first trial judge, you know, it goes to the appeals court in the Southern District. That's packed with a bunch of conservative Republican justices who might overturn it. Uh, and then, of course, if it ever got there, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court has also got a six to three conservative majority. So I think if it's just on the merits of the case and the precedent about protecting uh, free speech, then D Disney's got a very solid case and probably should win. But we, we, as we all know, that that's not always what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just earlier today in Jacksonville, DeSantis signed what he's lauded as the strongest anti-illegal immigration legislation in the country. It requires some employers to use the federal E-Verify system to validate the status of employees, mandates that healthcare workers and hospitals ask patients about their immigration status, and it would allow anyone who knowingly transports an undocumented migrant across state lines to be charged with felony human tra uh, trafficking. Um, what are your takes on this measure? Dr. Green, I'll start with Well, you. it's no surprise. I, and we should also add the, the I think it's $12 million yes. that was allocated toward, you know, funding the, you know, more uh, migrant flights. More migrant flights to places like Martha's Vineyard and everything. I, I mean, it's it's great political theater and it's potent symbolism uh, on behalf of, you know, one of the things that DeSantis has been using as a platform recently. But it's simply ramping it up in ways. I mean, the, the you know, one one additional issue here is sort of the the ambivalence, uh, obviously, of the business community toward, uh, you know, stricter requirements using the E-Verify system. There was a kind of exemption that was built into it for smaller businesses, but large and medium-sized businesses, there's a much more kind of mixed view on, on this. Yeah. And, and I might add, you were asking earlier about lawsuits. I mean, th th yeah. this one, there might be uh, a lawsuit filed against it for the simple fact that Immigration policy is largely un under the domain of the federal, federal government. government. And there have been a number of lawsuits filed in other states when the state legislatures were trying to do something to enforce immigration uh, policy or to crack down on illegal immigration. And in most of those cases, the uh, courts you know, found for the federal government and they overturned this law. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if we didn't see some challenge to at least some parts of this. Yeah. You think there's much probability of even pushback from the healthcare industry? I mean, having worked in an emergency room the better part of a decade, I can tell you I have personal experience with undocumented immigrants whose injuries were far worse by the time they sought care simply because they were afraid to seek care because of their status. And a law like this is only going to exacerbate that. Oh, I would anticipate. I would anticipate pushback, even if it's in the form of of quiet or stealthy um, pushback. But yeah, I would anticipate that. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, I, I Dr. Jewett. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to add, in, in, in addition to the hospitals, I might expect some pushback from some of those medium and large businesses. Yeah. Because historically, that's what's kept E-Verify yes. from <laughs> yeah, being Yeah, I know. They were the ones who were opposing it. 
You got it. And and particularly, you know, for certain sectors of Florida's economy, agriculture, agriculture. the re- restaurant industry, the hotel industry, the construction industry. I mean, some of these are huge industries that rely very, very heavily on illegal immigrant labor or, you know, or, or for people who don't have documentation. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can use various terms, but. Anyway, I, I won't be surprised if they also continue to work behind the scenes or maybe even file some lawsuits to try to, to fight that. Because from their point of view, if they can't hire um, you know, who they want, then their industry will really suffer, that there'll be tremendous labor shortages. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at the session overall, are there any bright spots you can point to, broadly speaking? By that, I mean truly nonpartisan measures that help some Floridians without hurting others. Well, I think there, you know, there was some, there was a fair amount of money that was uh, allocated toward environmental concerns. Um, Whether or not it will be sustained over the years that it would be needed is unclear. There was also an effort made, I think a bipartisan one, to direct some money toward affordable housing for workers, at least in terms of trying to create some incentives for uh, that would address that and, you know, facilitate mixed-use developments in commercial areas. I mean, I, I would see those as relatively positive in an otherwise very gloomy gotcha, legislative. Gotcha. Yeah, and ch- children's health, there was another one. Of course, we still didn't see an expansion of Medicaid like we've seen in like 40 other states. So Florida is an outlier there. So we still got a lot of people that don't have health insurance that could get it if, if Florida would get, you know, get on the stick and do like most states have done. But having said that, they did pass an expansion of the CHIP program, the child health care program, and that was fairly bipartisan as well. So I, I, I look at that as, a, as a, a win for a lot of kids who otherwise might not have access to health care now w- will have better access than they would have had. All right. Well, Dr. Jewett and Dr. Green, uh, we are out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, John. And our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.